You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. And one of the things we've been doing over the past few weeks is trying to rate presidential horses. We've sort of done an NCAA bracket, if you will. <laughs> and we've gone through and we've had these hypothetical debates about which horse would win a hypothetical race. And we're down to the final four. Lincoln acquires a horse in 1849, and horses, of course, are the main mode of transportation in Lincoln's time, so none of this should be surprising. And as a lawyer in Springfield traveling around circuit, he's going to need a carriage horse that can get him around. So he purchases Old Bob. The reason that they call him Old Bob is to separate him from his son, who at this time would be young Bob, Bob Robert Lincoln. Old Bob replaced Lincoln's former horse, Old Buck. So you can kind of see the convention here that he adopted. You know, we don't know much about the horse. There's a statue of him at the soldier's home in Washington, D.C., where Lincoln spent a lot of his time as resting as president. It was kind of his little Camp David, but much closer. When uh, Lincoln becomes president in 1860, they sell it to a drayman in Springfield. But in 1865... When Richmond, the Confederate capital, is conquered, Old Bob is brought. Uh, He's an older horse now. He's not really pulling carriages anymore. He's out in a pasture. But he's brought to make the ceremonial journey to Richmond along with Lincoln, coated in a red, white, and blue blanket. He also will sadly participate in Lincoln's funeral. We don't know the end of Old Bob. It's assumed that uh, he died sometime thereafter. I was interviewed recently on the Intellectual Property Frequently podcast, um, IP dot 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 frequently, hardy har har, and that is David and Brad. Look, it's a business podcast, uh, so definitely if you're into intellectual property law, you're going to want to check them out. They do talk a lot of politics too, so you're just going to get a, hey, you know, try to talk on a variety of places, people that will have me, and um, that's it. I thought they asked me some good questions. Maybe you should hear it, so I wanted to relay that on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. We also have some good programs coming up. Don't forget about the Patreon, patreon.com slash mhcbuyp to help support the program, get extra content. Leading the huddled masses into the safe harbor of good business practices and occasional time travel. Here are your hosts, the sirens of sanity, David Pridham and L. Bradley Sheaf. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. 
I don't think anyone can argue that is an outstanding song. You're probably wondering to yourself, you know, why? Why did we pick Wonderful World? Well, he tells us right off the bat, that being Terrence Trent Darby, who did record that in the 80s, but obviously was a cover of the immortal Sam Cooke, who initially recorded in 1960. The opening line is, don't know much about history. And if that's true of you, you're going to enjoy this week's podcast. That's right, Brad, because we have Bruce Carlson uh, of the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. And we're very excited to learn a little bit about what history can tell us about what's happening today and more importantly, what's going to happen tomorrow. Right on. Bruce, do you want to say a little something about your podcast and and what you're doing these days? Sure. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast available on Apple Podcasts and all, all all the places. Uh, and uh, we use history to elevate, hopefully, the politics of today, political discussion, ele- elevate and inform, provide a little context, a little backstory, and to look at some mystery. Sometimes we do repair work on some of the history, too, because uh, sometimes it needs it. And we tell a lot of stories and hopefully have some fun. I think the first thing we want to talk about is is the concept of history repeating itself, right? Because we're mm-hmm. now... Uh, seeing that we're you know, a divided country, we're mm. seeing politics really ending friendships and mm. uh, people that are so bitterly divided. What, what do you think about that? Does, does, is, it, is it cyclical? Does history just continue to repeat itself? I think uh, yeah, I, I love the uh, it, it's misattributed to uh, Mark Twain, but it's the line about uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes because it's never, you know, 100% even doing the show that we do. I often have to point out there are new events in history and and you have new types of politicians that come on the scene. Boy, did we ever recently, but it's not the first. I mean, um, and, uh, and so uh, particularly that question about the intensity or the uh, bitterness of politics or people being partisan and divided. You know what, though? It's almost always been the case. And um, one thing that's really clear to me, the more I study, say, the late 19th uh, century in America and our politics, is that if you take away Republican and Democrat because the Democrats were getting quashed um, nationally uh, in, and not winning too many presidential elections, you just had Grover Cleveland for the whole heck and, uh, second half of um of the 20th century, if you take away Republican versus Democrat and you look at what really was the partisan politics at the time, which was intra-Republican, bitter, bitter fighting, James Blaine and Roscoe Conkling, like, you know, once you disagreed with Conkling in a kind of a smart way, smart aleck way, let's say, on the floor of the Congress, you never talked to him again. I mean, him, Conkling and Blaine were two leaders of the Republican Party and would not speak to each other after an encounter in the 1860s. And the one comment I'll always make is, as since the presidency was created, there's only been about two or three elections where it wasn't actively contested by two very powerful and you know, populated parties uh, who wanted that office desperately. It's always been contested. You know, in general, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot, of, while there are a lot of extremes, there's also a lot of uh, moderation. And hopefully uh, American democracy still is a good example for the rest of the world, still better than other systems being tried. Certainly um, certainly better than a, than a, than a lot of countries have. 
Yeah, Bruce, I, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think you're exactly right. right? I mean, I, I think that not only have we sort of been here before in terms of, you know, just the heated, divisive nature of politics, uh, but I also believe in the system, right? I mean, one of the great things about a democracy is, you know, so long as you have faith that that democracy is being sort of well implemented in terms of there being free elections and properly counting the votes and all those sorts of things, that with a democracy, you get what you deserve, right? I mean, you get what you vote for. And at least in my experience, uh, both David and I are, are um, in our early 50s, as David will immediately jump in and tell you, yes, I am two years older. Uh, but you know, we've been around long enough to have seen the pendulum swing. And it seems like the American electorate you know, tends to look at what, who's in power, decide they're a bunch of clowns, kind of vote the other way next time. That pendulum swings back. It tends to swing a little too far. The American electorate then looks at that and goes, well, geez, that's not what we want either. Votes the other way next time. And we sort of always wind up you know, kind of swinging back and forth through the middle. And I think we're likely to see that again. I mean, in my opinion, the Democrats, you know, having control of, of both houses of Congress and the White House have done what both parties have tended to do when they're in that situation. They've overplayed their hand. They've, you know, taken their arguments to the extreme. You know, if you're in that position, you have this unique opportunity to be reasonable and to show the American electorate that you can lead and that you can stay focused on the important. And of course, no one's ever done that. And I, I think the Democrats are, are not doing that again. I think, you know, the, the fact that suddenly Dr. Zeus is, you know, the root of all evil is kind of an example of that. I'm just wondering, you know, not only what your opinion is on that, if you think that's true, but also for folks who tend to be moderate and this extremism, you know, sort of startles them or scares them about the future of the system, you know, what you might recommend them reading to kind of get a sense of the fact that, hey, we've been here before. This is sort of the American way. And, you know, it does not herald the doom of America. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, I mean, I'm a Richard Rorty fan. Um, you know, that is a little 
a little lefty of the intellectuals, but lefty, lefty center. Um, there's a great one. Um, of course, and you know, I'm not, not quite remembering it. It'll come to me, but it's about, uh, America and it's, uh, um, we, we deserving our country, I believe is the, uh, is something like that. It's almost worthy of a lookup. Okay. I'm coming in from the editing booth. That book is Achieving Our Country by Richard Rorty. I read a snippet from Achieving Our Country at the end of the Ronald Reagan series. And I would never um, cite any philosopher and make them the be-all or end-all of of all discussion or anything like that. I just think um, I like those who ask interesting questions and pose some suggested answers, and particularly for people who are progressive or on the left, um, and you want to think about how to fit those ideas into some rational sphere um, in modern times, I think that Rorty does. Rorty gives you an interesting perspective. There's all kinds of critiques of him out there. He His entire life was spent uh, arguing with other professors and philosophers via email about his theories. Here's something I thought about recently. Why do people spend all this time on the news? It changes every day. The name that you're hearing about, that you don't hear about them three days later. Um, you should cover the news. News should be digested. And it's just another thing that I think we're still adjusting to technologies. You know, when TV first came out, the first Senate candidate to come up with um TV ads was a fellow in Connecticut, and uh, he just won his election that way. But that didn't work after a certain period of time. Like a new technology needs to be adjusted to. We're still kind of figuring out the social media. We're we're making it like the epicenter of all our lives, and we need to start like digesting more. Like, okay, what's the news of the of the past couple of days? And also, people should consider their history diet along with their news diet. Why aren't they reading more history than they are news? I don't understand it because the one sticks around a little longer, you know, but the news to me, while I understand it's important, but I sometimes have to go on other podcasts to find out what the news is or, and especially when the news is simply something a columnist said today or some opinion that somebody had and it changes all the time. Um, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, Thomas Friedman's, uh, you know, 11 takes on the Iraq war during that time. That was the big joke. So you see that that there's a lot of uh, back and forth. Uh, and uh, you saw it in 2020 that Americans have the ability to correct their elections. We also have the ability to correct at the state and local level. You do have to be careful, though, of some harmful things that I see. And certainly when some of the post-election practices, I, I certainly didn't like, I don't like like trying to jam things into a, like one canvassing board in a certain city like that. You got to watch those things because then we might not have the democracy where those type of normal changes happen. Yeah. yeah. So what's, what's interesting to me is the, is the using history to form comparisons to try to predict the future and, and and just sort of to to you know juxtapose one historical figure against another and so mm -hmm. with trump there's that um natural comparison to andrew jackson what do you what do you think yeah. about that yeah i mean there's a lot that fits there's some things that don't um there's some things that don't well jackson uh, didn't have a, a twitter feed so that's one but can you imagine immigration huge supporter of immigration huge supporter of you're naturalized as an American when you arrive here and you become an American as his 
as his uh, ancestors did, wouldn't have liked any kind of policy of restriction. And and there were political benefits to Jackson as well for that immigration. So let's not kid ourselves a little bit there. But um, and that's that's true of all these presidents that we now don't like, like Franklin Pierce and Buchanan, I guess. Supporters of immigration. So different from him on that policy. Um, low tariff man, Jackson. Low tariff man would be the, low tariff would be the entire Democratic Party. Um, he, Trump takes the policy of, oddly enough, for some, I guess, you know, uh, Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt, which would be high tariff, um, protect American industry, keep out uh, um, foreign industries, but also that increases prices for Americans and those who uh, are buyers rather than makers didn't like it very much. Jackson would have been a low tariff guy, fought strenuously for it. On the other hand, he's a populist. And he, you know, just from his inauguration, when they had this huge spillover crowd at the White House, I mean, he was the president of the people. So Trump, by his own admission, wanted that image. He put him up in the White House. Um, But then there's this whole set of things that comes with Jackson, like the uh, Cherokee removal that are uh, very negative. Um, and um, and so, you know, if you do now, if you put up Jackson in right in 2017 in the White House, you're also making that statement or making a statement by not making one that it doesn't matter. And there's a lot of it, like I heard a host would call it reverse virtue signaling. And that's exactly what I think it is. I think a lot of it is like, hey, I don't have to care about that, the Cherokee removal. I'm putting up Jackson's thing anyway. We do have to worry, though. I will, I will say, like, I got, I remember getting a bad review early on because I talked about reading old books. And what I like about books is they don't change, right? You can't, can't go in and rip out the pages and change the book. It's the book. Um, I worry a little bit about the web. I think most of, a lot of the web is still extant. I don't think all of it's changing, but I do like to use old books. I have to point out where sometimes they're biased or wrong, you know, um, or they're, uh, I was doing one on the reconstruction and I used James Ford Rhodes. I had to point out that he's very biased. He doesn't like the reconstruction. He wanted it to end and bring white government back in the South. But on the other hand, here he is talking about how terrible this particular massacre of African-Americans was. So you've got to like, you know, we need those, we need all the voices um, because we will lose something, but you never get around a little bit of um, this. It really changed. Like since the nineties has been a lot of more cultural interpretation. Some of it's good. Like we, we study more than we ever did about native Americans in, in the right way. That's good. Is it, does it mean that you can no longer talk about, you know, Jefferson, right? Or, or Jefferson's father, who was in Virginia making maps and working with those uh, Indian tribes early on. Like, I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart 
and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Do we no longer care about certain stories? So I think it's like you have to, and you have to have the polyhedra of views and read a lot. And uh, um, it's, it's a tough, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that things could get too far. I do wonder if we're there yet. I also get wary of if somebody like I get wary of too much political correctness. I also get wary of somebody who might be making a career out of, um, hey, I'm outraged every day by some new PC thing. You know, I don't like that either. Um, and I and I wary of both things. I think so, most people are. So, so Bruce, one, one thing we do on our show each week is we have a, a, a little segment we call time machine. Right. And that's where one mm-hmm. of us goes back in time, usually Brad. Um, and you, know, you send them to some pivot point in history and have a discussion about uh, have a discussion about what you would do or what you could do to 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 change history. And it's a fun little thing. Uh, you know, we're, we're you know, everything from the JFK assassination to, you know, to biblical times. And so as a as a student of history, if, if you could go back um, to one event, you know, where would you go and what would you do? There's just one. I want to be in the Constitutional Convention, folks. You know, I want to be there. I'd be in Philadelphia with the green room, with the chairs. Um, but um, time period, I'm really intrigued by the 1920s. I feel like yeah. it's the modernizing. It's the decade between the America we know and the one that we don't. It's the modernizing decade. To where if you start going to the 1890s, it's kind of modernizing too, but there's a lot there that we're not even going to understand. Well, the 20s starts to feel pretty, yeah, I get, we got cars, we got airplanes, we got uh, trucks, we got, you know, schools, buildings. You, Cal- uh, you got Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge, you know, yeah. the <laughs> radio. More exciting. You know. Let me step in from the editing booth once again. This happens sometimes in interviews, so you don't always hear the question or answer it. Uh, I answered what would be like a nifty or cool time to visit. And, of course, the Constitutional Convention is it. But um, the other question was, what would you change? And if I was there at the Constitutional Convention, this will be controversial. Hey, you, you're going to have your own opinions about it. I'm not going to list like 20 changes to the Constitution because that's a process. And that that's something that's been worked out over American history. But I would simply revisit the amending process. I think that the people in that convention were – biased against changing the constitution in any way they didn't want a bill of rights they didn't want uh, another constitutional convention they didn't want the state legislatures nitpicking i get it so what you have is a document that's really biased against change three-fourths of the legislature after a, a tough congressional vote is really a high standard to amend the constitution and Government should be for the president. So how I would balance those two competing things, because you can also make the opposite case that it should be tough to change a constitution. And I would say this. I like how in American history, we're sort of forced by this mechanism to have presidential elections every four years, no matter what. Congressional elections every two years, no matter what. So add in another no matter what. Every 25 years. There's an automatic constitutional convention. I would still have a high bar, but I would make it two-thirds. So the states meet every 25 years. There's an opportunity to change the constitution. It is two-thirds of the state legislatures that have to agree 
to a change in the document. And that way you're getting something that's a little more relevant, but still difficult to change. You want to um, meet me halfway? Fine. Keep it three-fourths. But just make the introduction of constitutional amendments something more automatic, like the result of uh, state constitutional conventions that are automatic at 25-year intervals and then still keep the three-fourths for passing them. Because it's really hard to pass constitutional amendments. We've had very few. Last one's 1992, and it's something that was started in the 1700s, uh, that 27th Amendment. Um, the other, because I can't just pick one, there's so many moments in time that you'd like to change. I would really um, would love to be able to change something involving Reconstruction and Andrew Johnson and I think if you were able to give African-American people a chance with an extended reconstruction and federal protection and Freedmen's Bureau period in the 19th century, America would be a much better place. Yeah, again, my opinion, that's what what ifs are about. That's what they are. <laughs> and here's another question. So one thing we've been we, we debate a little bit about are. Um, we find these little quirky things in history and we talk about them. And one of the things we've been doing over the past few weeks is trying to rate presidential horses, right? <laughs> now, I know that it sounds a little out there, but people love it. And so we've sort of done an NCAA bracket, if you will. And we've gone through and we've had these hypothetical debates about which horse would win a hypothetical race. And we're down to the final four. And the final four are... Um, uh, George Washington had a horse named Magnolia. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, um, uh, let's see. Uh, Jefferson had a horse named Carcatechus. Uh, Abe Lincoln had his horse, Old Bob. Old Bob. And, yeah. And there's a horse that um, uh, William Henry Harrison rode in his ill-fated inaugural, right? <laughs> a white horse that, no one, they, people call it Old Whitey, but that's actually the name of Zachary Taylor's horse. So they, they, there have been articles written about how people don't know the name of that horse. And actually, a fun fact about that inauguration was John Quincy Adams was there, and he said just the look on the face of that horse sent a, a, a chill down his spine. It was the meanest looking horse he had ever <laughs> seen. And so, you know, th those are our four top four, you know, final four horses. Do you have any good uh, presidential horse stories? <laughs> not sure I do. Not, I'm not thinking of a, of a um, president's horse. Okay. Um, uh, I believe it was James Monroe who got into a little bit of trouble um, for accepting a horse from the King of Spain because of the uh, emoluments clause. So uh, that's, uh, yep, that was James Monroe. Um, sort of his uh, checkers moment. Yeah, yeah exactly. He, and, we're, and we're keeping it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he, he uh, yeah, he, there, was, there was no scandal, though, with that one. Uh, he just, I think, he, you know, Congress generally has been like, the little gifts are okay, watch the big stuff. But um, I do favor Jefferson's horse in that race, by the way, because uh, I think that uh, he gave it a good workout. I got Washington did, too. But uh, Jefferson was uh, pretty much going to be a daily rider. Um, I don't ride horses, but I understand it's good exercise. It certainly was for these people. That's yeah, what Reagan, Washington Reagan loved it. Reagan loved it. 
Oh yeah. That and chopping the wood. Chop, uh, <laughs> chop. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, this is what they did. Uh, this is how they kept fed uh, a lot of horse, uh, walking and, you know, they weren't necessarily doing Pilates. Now Roosevelt just started to get again into that closer to that modernizing period where he's doing the, he's doing the calisthenics and the shadow boxing. And boxing in the, in the white house, right? Yeah. And beating up people. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Bruce, this has been, this has been great. We, we appreciate you, uh, joining and, and, and talking about some of the very important, uh, um, aspects of history that sort of give us a little insight into what's happening today and what could happen, uh, uh, tomorrow. Maybe you could give our listeners, uh, another plug, uh, about your podcast and where we can find you in the, uh, uh, land of podcasts. Oh, sure. And thanks for having me on. It's uh, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Uh, you know, if you, you can type my history can beat up your politics into Google or go on Apple podcasts and, and, um, and it was just, we've been doing it since 2006. Um, my joke is that's when, you know, uh, we had like two cups in the string, you know, for podcasts, but it, I did do a phone upload, by the way. So it might, I'm becoming historic myself. Um, so it's been around a long time. I'm pleased to have a lot of fans. Um, and if you like history and politics in a combination, then uh, definitely, yeah, please check me out. Well, Bruce, uh, certainly we're big fans and we can tell everybody, you know, listening here that if, if you have any interest in history or if you even if you haven't in the past, but the, you know, the, the things that are going on in our country today are causing you concern, or you'd like to understand the historical basis for where we've been and how we've got here, then, then we cannot recommend highly enough Bruce's podcast. So we would direct you to him. I'm sure you'll be a fan as well. And Bruce, again, we, we much appreciate you taking the time. We look forward to having you on again sometime soon in the near future on uh, IP Frequently. Thanks so much. This has been IP Frequently, once again clearing a forest of lies with the machete of truth. You're welcome. Here's how you find uh, David and Brad's podcast, IP dot dot dot, frequently, HTTPS colon slash slash anchor dot FM slash IP hyphen frequently or Twitter at IP underscore frequently. Check them out. You know, there, if you go to the at my hist Twitter, I'm going to have a link to uh, where I'm on on their show if you want to check them out. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.